Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Hello folks, good morning. Andre here, Lead Pastor City. As always, really good to be with you on a Sunday morning. Thanks so much for tuning in and joining us for this time of gathering where we come together in this unconventional manner to worship God wherever you're at and also to hear from the Spirit as we lean into the Scriptures this morning. Well, if I have not had the privilege of meeting you in person, you've recently joined our church, I'd like to extend my welcome and my love to you, grace to you, and I hope that we'll be able to connect soon someday. And so do make it a point to drop uh, a comment in the comment section or uh, drop us a message on our Facebook page to let us know if you're new. We'll love to connect with you and send some love your way. Well, as Pastor Janice mentioned, we are going to start, uh, we're going to launch a brand new prayer initiative uh, next week. It's called Seek First. It's 48 hours of consistent, uninterrupted intercession. We're calling for our church in light of all that we're experiencing in our world today to humble ourselves to pray. And so I want to ask you, I want to implore you to make time, to set aside time to participate in this initiative. Our dream here is for every single one of those slots, we have 48 slots in total, every single one of those slots to be occupied so that we may have a consistent, unbroken chain of intercession. I believe it's going to be really, really powerful. And so please, please, please set aside time to pray together with us. I believe God will do something mighty in your life, in the life of our church, our community, as well as in our world. Now, I chanced upon a story recently. It's about John Wesley. He was uh, in a prayer meeting and was praying into the wee hours of the night. And it says in this story that the Spirit of God came mightily upon them and they cried out with exceeding joy as many fell to the ground at three in the morning. And so, you know, I'm expectant for some of these wee hours late into the night kind of encounters that some of you would be having. I really believe that 3 a.m. is the glory times, the glory zone. And so I want to encourage you to perhaps go out of your way to perhaps uh, maybe embrace a bit of discomfort in this time and take up some of these uh, less popular thoughts. I believe God will honor that sacrifice. And so I encourage you to sign up. It's going to be really, really powerful. Well, uh, folks, this uh, is my last message uh, to you uh, before I go on paternity leave in a couple of weeks and I'm excited that the next time I'll be talking to you I'll be doing so uh, with an audience with people actually in the room as we move ahead and move toward our reopening our physical services and we'll have some comms coming your way about what it means for the church when I go on paternity as well as some comms coming your way about the reopening of our physical services and so all this to say super duper excited for um, the new stage of life I'm entering into but also really excited for our congregation to come back together mightily well uh, today I will be teaching a kind of companion message to the message I did last week. And uh, if you've not heard that message, I encourage you to take a listen to it as it really sets the tone, the vision, and the trust for this year, for 2021. And I talked about prayer. I talked about how prayer is not just a due diligence. It's not just a side thing, but really it's the first and foremost thing which really explains our first initiative of the year. And so today I'll be speaking and uh, giving a companion message to that message to really help set the tone and the direction for this year. 
Last week, we did some work on 1 Peter chapter 4, which calls us to be sober, alert, in light of the end times, so that we may pray. And even as we're confronted today with the state, the sad state of affairs, honestly, in our world, let us be not uh, people who default into hopelessness and despondency, but let us default into prayer. Catch that, right? Listen to me. Let us not default into hopelessness, despondency, or even complaining or pushing our opinions on people, but let us instead be defaulted into earnest, humble, persistent, fervent prayer. That is my prayer for our community. And so today I want to take a look at the chapter that immediately follows uh, Peter's call and admonition to the church to pray in light of the end times. I want to take a look at 1 Peter chapter 5 today. And in 1 Peter 5, Peter the Apostle unravels and expounds on this value that uh, we often just glance by and don't think of much in the church today. But this value is actually really, really important and something that God values super deeply. And this value is actually something that precedes a move of the Spirit. In many ways, it is a prerequisite to the outpouring of God. And so today, I'd like to speak to you on the subject of humility. And I've entitled my message, A Vision for Humility. A Vision for Humility. And I have a sub title it's it goes so very weak but yet so very proud so very weak yet so very proud and i don't know how many of you have concluded uh 2020 with a time of reflection and what the outcome of that reflection has been for some of us you know it might be concluding that we really need god we are weak feeble creatures who are in need of god's grace mercy, kindness, and presence in our world, even as we're confronted with much of the complexity of these times and come to the end of ourselves, not knowing what solutions are required of us, not knowing what to do in life these times, not having answers to real problems, questions, and uh, perhaps you know, even disillusionments. We come to the conclusion, the rightful conclusion that we need God. But perhaps some of you have come to a different conclusion. That perhaps this time, last year has been a time of just disengagement and apathy and perhaps you've concluded that you don't really need God, that life pretty much goes on well without God. And I'd like to speak to uh, both groups today, but especially to that latter group. And I want to say to you that life wasn't meant to proceed without God in His presence. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were cre- are creatures made for, by, and to long for God's presence, His grace and His reality in our world. And so uh, I'd like to open up this time of uh, teaching with reading to you the text from 1 Peter chapter 5 and we'll open this message with a time of looking to God in prayer. 1 Peter 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lauding it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because 
God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today, acknowledging our great need for you, O God. Lord, we recognize that life was not made for us to live in and, on, in and of our own strength and devices, but we were very much made for your glory, your presence, to live in communion, to live in deep intimacy with you, O oh God. And Lord, we pray that even through this time of study, that when you awaken us to that great need, when you awaken us to our soul's truest longings, when you awaken us to areas of our life where we have clinged on to in lieu of that pursuit. God, we pray that you do a deep work in us today, even as we read of your words. Spirit of God, we invite you to come, speak to us, illuminate this time we pray. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, we give a, a bit of background and backdrop to uh, what First Peter is, which I personally believe is probably the most important book to read uh, in light of the times you're experiencing. First Peter was written to uh, the group of, uh, to the church who was dispersed and, 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 and spread all around Asia Minor, who were under deep and intense persecution. The Emperor Nero had come on, his, on to the scene and he had a deep disdain and, uh, and absolutely hated the Christians, and he in uh, persecuted them in such uh, great intensity. And First Peter uh, was written to the church uh, in the midst of persecution. And so Peter understands that Christians at that time were losing their faith, they were perhaps losing their wealth, losing their possessions, losing even their life. And under you know, pressure and under that kind of threat, we see things start coming apart at it seems. And perhaps around that time, you know, we can imagine that the church was not just uh, dispersed uh, physically, but perhaps they were even dispersed and discouraged and, and fractured even in their faith and love for one another. And so Peter writes to that audience in that time and he calls them and he exhorts them to love each other, to humble and submit themselves to one another. It is a call to humility. And in a short text that we just read, in that text alone, the word humble or humility was mentioned three times. The charge toward humility wasn't just a cursory kind of thing. It wasn't just a flippant kind of mention, but it was in uh, Peter's writing absolutely crucial and vital for them to capture and that's why he mentioned it so many times. And that charge to humility, that call to humility doesn't just appear in 1 Peter, it actually appears all through the New Testament. The character trait of humility, interestingly enough, is the second most frequently thought trait or biblical value aside from love, second only to love. One scholar counted 50 instances of how love was taught either by precept or example in the New Testament, and he counted 40 instances where humility was taught as a precept or as an example. And he concludes that these two traits are foundational stones to the Christian character, to the Christian faith. All other character traits, in one way or another, are built on those two stones, love 
and humility. And yet, we don't observe humility or teachings on humility as a regular feature in our pulpits. And many of us, just like sober-mindedness, don't make humility a goal for our spiritual formation and discipleship. We don't actively posture or intentionally seek to grow in humility. But for Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, humility was a core spiritual virtue. And I'll put it to you that it is more important and vital than you think. Let's look at a couple of verses from the text that we've just read. Let's start off in verse 5. It says this, In the same way you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. And that word, the same way, was in reference to the preceding text where Peter exhorts shepherds, elders, and leaders of the flock to do their duty, to, do their, to perform their role willingly, not for gain, but to serve to do so willingly, not under compulsion, not with you know, uh, uh, disdain or, or uh, kind of regret, but to do so willingly. And isn't that a stunning vision to paint, right? That as followers of leaders, we get to serve our leaders, not just you know, benefit under their care, under their instruction, but we get to serve, we get to love them, we get to invest in them, we get to be a source of encouragement. That is what it means to submit to one another in a humble manner, in a biblical manner. Next he says, submit yourselves to your elders. That word submit yourselves in the Greek is really interesting. It's actually a compound word which means, uh, which is made of the words arrange and under. And so it is to say, to submit ourselves, it is to make arrangements or adjustments to position oneself under another person's leadership. And we often think of a word like submit uh, and we have connotations of oppression, you are pushed down, it's really top down. But notice uh, the word that is used here, it actually implies a whole lot of agency. You actually have a lot of control, a lot of say. It's to willingly arrange and adjust to position oneself under another person's leadership, to willingly come under. That is what it means to submit. And that's what we get to do, you know, even in life, we get to submit ourselves to godly leaders, to mentors, to people who are further along in life than we are. That is what biblical submission means. Next he says, clothe yourselves in humility. And the, 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 the Apostle Peter uses a really interesting and remarkable expression that never occurs anywhere else in Scripture. That word clothed, or better in other translations, actually means gird, to gird yourselves. And it actually describes a kind of garment, as well as the act of putting it on. This text was in reference to the kind of garment that was part of a slave's uniform. Some scholars believe that it was kind of white apron, uh, towel, or overall, something of that sort, that the slave would gird himself with to imply or to symbolize that he was ready to work. Which takes us to this story in John chapter 13, doesn't it? It says in scripture that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water in the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so that is what ought to come to our minds is as we approach this text, as we think about humility. To be clothed with humility means to be girded with a towel in order that we may serve. 
And so from the text, we immediately gather three thoughts about biblical humility. One, humility is not for the purpose of self-gain. We don't do so in order that we may butter up, curry favour, or appear pious. We don't embrace this virtue in order to be palatable, in order to get ahead in life. We don't do so for the purpose of self-gain. Humility is also an act of one's will. It's not forced upon us. We willingly arrange and make adjustments in order to do so. The last thought of humility is this, that humility is in service of others, that just as Christ humbled himself to serve, we too follow in his example. And this is what I would describe as relational humility. It's humility in the way we interact with one another, humility that we are to afford one another in the name of God's love. Now, these are self-explanatory and really easy to grasp. But then the verse moves. Peter quotes this stunning line from Proverbs chapter 3. He quotes this line that says, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. The word used there for humble uh, in, in the text expresses a different kind of humility, interestingly. It is used to describe a person who is lowly or poor in spirit. One lexicographer uh, describes it to denote an inner loneliness, which means that it is a person who has grown to be God-reliant instead of self-reliant. And so we read that there is a relational kind of humility that we are to afford one another, but there's also an inner humility, a disposition of the heart that we are to cultivate, one that leans on God instead of our own understanding and strength. Now that verse starts off with an incredibly scary line that many of us glance past too flippantly. It says this, that God opposes the proud. In some translation, it's, it says this, that God resists the proud. That word there is a military term. It would denote to be standing against an opposition to word. It is incredibly strong language. Now, life in our world is challenging and complex enough. There's so much to figure out. But imagine living in our world apart from God's grace and having the God of the universe standing in opposition to you, resisting you. That is a scary, scary thought. Now, if I were to ask you a question today, name the greatest threat to your spiritual life. Name the greatest threat to life in God's kingdom in our world. Some of you may name certain sins and vices and indulgences. Others might name you know, Netflix as a source of distraction. But I dare say almost none of us would list pride as the greatest threat to life in the kingdom of God. But yet scripture tells us that God is opposed. He resists the proud, the self-reliant, those who live in and of their own strength. In fact, Proverbs tells us that God actually hates pride. Extremely strong language. He hates pride. Let's read this text. It says this, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. 
haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that hurry to run to evil, a lying witness who testifies falsely, and one who sows discord in family. If you look at each of these seven things that God detests, you can see that pride is at the centre of each one, particularly haughty eyes, which can be translation, translated having a prideful look. It is to be exalted, high and lofty above others so that you may naturally look down upon them in a condescending manner. That is what the phrase haughty look means. It is extremely prideful. So the question we come to as we read all this is this. Why is God so fundamentally opposed to pride? Why does he hate it so much? Why is he even antagonized by this notion and idea of human beings being prideful creatures? How does pride contradict the kingdom of God and hinder the flow of God's blessing? It was C.S. Lewis who once said that the fountainhead to all vice is pride. Every other sin is a mere expression or a symptom of pride. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And when we read the scriptures, we see this struggle with pride that eventually leads to destruction and despair being very much a part of the human story. In the book of Genesis, we read of this account of the fall of men. It says this in Genesis 3, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in that day you will eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband, who was with her, and ate it. And so we here, here we see that Eve's desire to obtain wisdom, and in a sense, God-likeness on her own terms, in her own way, apart from God, was what eventually led to the fall. That is pride. We also think of the biblical king Asa, one of the saddest stories in the Bible. Asa started off really, really well. It says that he had a heart for the Lord. It, was, it said that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. That was how he started his life. And God prospered him and it was said in scripture that there was no threat of war in Asaph's kingdom all the way till the 35th year of his reign. And toward the later years of his life, in uh, the prosperity and success that God gave him, he disobeyed God. He began to rely on his own ways, his own strengths, his own plans. And when he was confronted by a prophet in God's mercy, he imprisoned the prophet and then went on to further oppress and persecute the people. And it's from the story of Asa that we get this well-quoted verse. From 2 Chronicles 16, it says this, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose heart are fully committed to Him. You have done a foolish thing, says the Lord to Asa, and from now on you will be at war. And so we cite this incredible verse of promise really often. The eyes of the Lord searches to and fro for those who are committed to Him. But read on further, the rest of the verse, it is a warning, it is an indictment on Asa, it is a kind of mispromise that was a result of pride. And then we look at Isaiah chapter 14, starting from verse 12, which, is, which describes the fall of Lucifer, the first instance of pride. It says this, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn, 
you have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in the heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit and throne on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Lord most high. And this is the heart of pride, ladies and gentlemen. I will, I will, I will. I will ascend to the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Lord Most High. I will be successful. I will prove them wrong. I will get my kids into that school. I will be remembered and respected. I will have a legacy that people remember. From the garden to Babel to King Asa to here in first world Singapore. I will, I will, I will in and of my own strength and devices timing. This is the original lie that the enemy sowed into humanity at the dawn of eternity. And it's the same lie that reverberates throughout our world today, that through sheer will alone, through your own strength, you can be like God. That is pride. And this is especially dangerous in a time like ours. In this month, especially when we're making resolutions about how we want 2021 to be, and the culturally lauded values of grit, self-determination, hustle, and will, we can very much be like Lucifer, like Asa, like Eve. I will, I will, I will. Not God's strength, but in my own strength. And over time, gradually, our affections become rooted in oneself. And we conclude, it is not God's will, but my will be done. And that is why God hates pride. Being prideful isn't just a side personality type temptation. Being prideful is to be directly opposed to the kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis says this about pride. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Or even let's hear this line from the founder of the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey. He says this, We don't worship Satan, we worship ourselves. Using the metaphorical representation of the qualities of Satan. Satan is the name used by Judeo-Christians for that force of individuality and pride within us. And so here we gather that the essence of Satanism is not drinking blood, wearing horns, or participating in strange rituals. It is the fundamental commitment to taking a seat on the throne of your life. It is saying that you deserve to be the center of the known universe. You deserve to be in control. You deserve to be God. That is pride. There's this interesting story that has come out of the Desert Father tradition. We've uh, talked a bit about the Desert Fathers in some of our previous teachings. And this story, uh, which is part of tradition, goes, uh, One day the devil appeared to a brother in the disguise of an angel of light. The devil said, I am the archangel Gabriel and I was sent to you in an attempt to deceive the brother. The brother responded, Make sure you are not sent to somebody else, for I am not worthy to see an angel. And the devil, seeing the humility of the brother, immediately disappeared. And this is a funny story, but it illustrates the schemes and plans of the evil one. To cause the people of God 
to open up the door to pride and inadvertently open the door to every other sin. And that's why in 1 Peter, following this call to humility in chapter 5, it is immediately followed with a call to spiritual warfare. It is as if to say that if we get this thing with, of humility right, we shut out the enemy from our lives. That pride really is the starting point to many of the other sins that we battle with, that we struggle with in our lives. Now, we aren't strangers to the destruction of pride. Yet the sad fact is, none of us are immune to pride. It isn't just the temptation for those INTJs, Enneagram type 1 types. All of us are subjected to some form, some manner, some measure of pride. It infects us all. Now, one of the most consistent battles that I fight on the spiritual front in my pursuit to becoming more like Jesus is the battle of pride. I am, uh, honestly speaking, an incredibly proud man, and it manifests in my life in a multitude of ways from caring, over-caring uh, 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 how I appear to others, to wanting to be needed, to having a kind of messiah complex. Uh, to illustrate this point, uh, the day before I recorded this message, I was up till 5 in the morning. Now, I typically go to bed fairly early, but I was up to 5 in the morning because I was extremely grieved and concerned with some uh, comments that I found on Facebook in a particular group that I'm a part of. And I was up to 5 because I had uh, mixed emotions. I was grieved, I was saddened, but yet I felt like I had this immense responsibility and burden to say something to quell arguments that have been going on for months, you know. So I was up to five in the morning, racking my brain. So how can I give that one line that just shuts everyone up? How can I just solve this situation? How can I bring peace to all that is happening in that group? And though for the most part, that is well-meaning, it is in many ways a thinly veiled form of pride. And I found in my own life that there is a thin line between godly conviction and willful arrogance. Personally, I can think of three common manifestations of pride. One, pride manifests itself as self-importance. It is thinking too highly of oneself. And this often leads to a messiah complex. It often leads to you thinking that you are the only one, you are the only person in all of human history in this time to be able to effect that kind of changes, to think of oneself too far too greatly. Tim Keller puts it uh, super well. He says this, human beings have very little real power over their, their lives. 95% of what sets the course of their lives is completely outside their control. This includes the century and place they are born in, who their parents and family are, their childhood environment, physical stature, genetically hardwired talents, and most of the circumstances that they find themselves in. In short, all we are and have is given to us by God. We are infinite creators, but finite, dependent creatures. The next uh, common manifestation of pride uh, we observe is pride as self-absorption. Pride as self-absorption is to be preoccupied with one's desires, feelings, and interests with no regard for others, is to make oneself the center of the universe. 
John Dixon uh, writes this uh, incredible paragraph on what humility ought to look like in the world. He says this, Humility is social. It is not a private act of self-deprecation, banishing proud thoughts, refusing to talk about your achievements, and so on. I would call this simply modesty. But humility is about redirecting of your powers, whether physical, intellectual, financial, or structural, for the sake of others. That's why Peter exhorts for all of us to be humble, to clothe ourselves in humility. It's not a private self-deprecation. It is in relationship, choosing to prefer others over oneself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less in love and in service toward others. The last manifestation of pride that I can think of is pride that manifests itself as self-reliance. It goes, I can do it all by myself. Through sheer will, I can make it. I will, I will, I will, I don't need God. And in many ways, our culture conspires against us towards this goal of humility. We have unprecedented access to information, so we don't rely on others much. In a previous time where we had to call a friend up for a recipe or to learn the guitar, you no longer have to do so. We celebrate today radical individualism and self-expression. We have, in the words of Scripture, grown to be lovers of self. And today we actively dismiss contrarian or opposing views in the name of defending our truth and our feelings. And though we see much of this played out in our world today. And here are some non-exhaustive signs of pride that I hope you would seriously consider if they are a part of your own life. One, not wanting to talk with someone or spend time with someone because they just don't quite measure up. Thinking they should have asked me to do that, I would have done it better. Waiting to turn the conversation to highlight something you have done. Hearing about another person's problems and feeling better about yourself because it has not happened to you. Trying to serve God without prayer. Thinking pride is not that big of a problem for you, that somehow you're special. Not confessing sin or need unless you are backed into a corner or confronted. Pride looks down on others. Pride does not listen well. Pride is stubborn. Pride is not eager to learn because it is confident in what it already knows. Pride is not quick to admit wrong because it fears it may look bad or lose its position. Pride is competitive and easily threatened. Pride is insecure. Pride finds it hard to rejoice in the success and good. Now, if that list that I read does not scare you, listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say on pride. He says this, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That is God. The ultimate tragedy to pride is that it places us in direct opposition to God, His presence, and His purposes. Pride turns us away from God. Pride distorts our vision. Pride you know, causes us to live under a kind of delusion that the world is to be centered around us. Prideful living is conformity to the kingdom of darkness. It is it's in direct opposition to all that is God and His kingdom. But thank God, in His mercy and kindness, He gives us the antidote to pride. That as His children, we don't have to be susceptible. We don't have to fall into the same sins of a previous generation. That there is deliverance and breakthrough for God's people. That antidote to the poison that is pride is humility. 
And this is what humility is and does. Humility allows us freedom from being perfect. A humble person does not have to live under the pressure of knowing it all and doing it all. Humility says, I have blind spots. A humble person knows that they don't see everything about themselves. They need God and they need others. Humility is also a proper estimate of oneself. It is a right assessment of who you are. We recognize that we are in many ways made up of a mixture of desires, of wills, of gifts and limits. And because of that, we need others. We need other people's gifts. We need to be confronted sometimes when we go off a different path, when we move away from God's intent, will and purposes. Humility does that. Humility recognizes that, that we need people around us to speak into our lives. Humility also realizes that we can't be everything to and for everyone that we cannot rescue people. We need Jesus in order to do that. If we are able to save people in and of our own strength and advice and plans and programs, Jesus wouldn't have have needed to come. And so the freest people are ones who know that they are not the Messiah, that they need a Messiah. And because they know that there's no competition and nothing to compete for, they are free. Humility frees us. And the last thing is this, that humility is the expression of divinity. Jesus Christ took on the nature of a servant. The very essence of God is that he is a servant who washes feet. The same Jesus was obedient even to death. That is the Jesus to whom we love and serve. And as we entrust our lives to him, we no longer have to live in a way that's inconsistent with the cross, with the way Jesus lived on the earth. Instead, our lives are marked with a humility, with a lowliness of spirit in service toward others, in deep realization and reliance on God, His grace and His mercy. That's why Peter says this in verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Now my biggest pastoral learning in 2020, that intense and complex year is this, that much of burnout, stress, and anxiety comes from pride, comes from a willful arrogance that I can make it on my own, that I'm super duper important and indispensable, that people actually need me more than they need God. Because hear me in saying this, worry is anti-humility. Worry is anti-humility. It is said that worry is imagining of one's future apart from God. The invitation of humility is this, that we get to cast our anxiety on God who cares for us. And in humility, we profess that we can't do it on our own. We need His grace, His mercy, and especially so challenging In this time and age where we have so much information, skills, and know-how to come to a humble conclusion that we need God so desperately. Life really gets difficult when we choose to do it in our prideful strength. But when we choose to be humble, when we choose to rely on God, we experience His easy yoke, His burden which is light. And in the words of Eugene Peterson, we get to live with an unforced rhythm of grace. Isn't that beautiful? 
when we choose to live life in all, of our own strength, we experience opposition and resistance from the God of the universe who so longs to lavish us with his abounding grace. Now notice the language in 1 Peter. It says this, humble yourselves. It is almost to say that we don't pray for humility to magically fall on us. That it's not a gift of humility that it will suddenly come into uh, just you know, by way of encounter, but we have to humble ourselves. It requires intentionality in the way we conduct ourselves in the world. So how do we start? How do we grow to be humble? How do we capture a greater vision for humility and hope that in 2021 that you would seriously consider growing in humility, to have a vision for humility in your life, to view it as one of the core pursuits of the spiritual life, to grow, to depend on God and others even more so. And that could be a pathway for our church to move toward humility. It may look like something like this. Number one, having leaders and mentors that you are willing to subject yourself to. And that's why I read in First Peter is to arrange and adjust our lives in submission to others, to actually trust in someone else's direction, to actually trust in someone else's advice and opinion and input, to perhaps even reduce the agency that we have in our own lives in submission to others whom we trust. Number two, have a close circle of friends that you are open and honest about your flaws and failings to shed aside this need to have that perfect image, but to have a group of friends whom you can trust to hold you accountable, to pray for you, to catch you when you fall. It's also not to shy away from the insignificant and mundane, but instead to use these moments to cultivate deep character. It's also to exercise empathy, to be quick to listen and slow to speak, and in our world, it's to be slow to comment on Facebook. And five is to venture out of our own echo chambers to hear from those who may think or are gifted differently from us. It's to stick, take steps of faith that requires us to experience God's grace. It's to consider daily how deep one's sinfulness is and how vast God's mercy is. And number eight is also to create a gratitude ritual to every day profess how God has richly blessed us that all that is good in our lives comes only from the Father. It's to come to God in a kind of humility and gratitude of the heart. God is the source of all that is good in my life. Apart from Him, I have nothing. So, church, may we capture a greater vision for humility in 2021. May we seriously consider it to be one of the chief pursuits of spiritual growth in our world, in our time today, to seriously resist the evil that is pride and lean into God and each other in a deeper way. Because hear me in saying this, we need humility. We need humility because it enables us to resist the enemy, to resist the evil that is pride. And we need humility because it is what attracts God. God is attracted. He is moved by humility. And in many ways, it precedes and, and it's a prerequisite of the move of the Spirit. The Bible tells us that when His people humble themselves to pray, He moves in power. When we pray in lack, it is an expression of faith. But when we pray in plenty, it is an expression of humility. And I wonder... In our prideful world, in this world that we're living in that is full of pride, 
self-will and agency. What a movement of humility amongst God's people would do for our world. Pride is spiritual blindness, a delusional inflated view of self, whereas humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. In the presence of God, I gain a glimpse of my true state in the universe, which exposes my smallness and at the same time exposes and reveals God's greatness. Pride is the kingdom of darkness in seed form, whereas humility is the kingdom of God in seed form. And whatever we plant will produce fruit among us. Let's seriously consider what fruit we long to see in our lives, in our world, in this day. Close off with a passage of scripture. Isaiah chapter 66, it says this. Isaiah chapter 66, it says this. Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. What a stunning biblical promise that God looks down with favor on the humble. What an amazing promise that into this world, into our world of fame-seeking, attention-grabbing, the paradoxical kingdom declares that the lower we go, the more God's eyes and attention is upon us. What a stunning promise. Catch this, the only time in scriptures we read of Jesus' heart, where Jesus gives us a kind of revelation into his heart, who he fundamentally is. He says this, that I am humble in heart. I am gentle and humble in heart. And though we see so much misrepresentation of God, Jesus, and his kingdom in our world today, many would say Jesus was harsh at times, that Jesus would kick out the money changers from the temple. But Jesus in this text that we read in Matthew 11 gives us a revelation of who he really is. At the heart of all things, above all, Christ is gentle and humble in heart. And thank God for Jesus' humility. He who condescended himself, he who descended from heaven, he who was born in a lowly manger, he who died a sinner's death in order that our wretched souls may be redeemed. Why is humility great? Because apart from humility, we would not be saved because without it, we would be condemned. And so with our vision of becoming more like Jesus in our world, let us have a vision for humility in 2021, to grow to be more dependent on God, each other, less on our own strength and understanding, to resist willful arrogance and pride, to be poor in spirit so that we may inherit the kingdom of God. Humility is the way of Christ, is the way of the kingdom. Amen. Let us pray as we close off this time. Jesus, we thank you for your humility and how you've set an example for all of us. You who humbled yourselves, descended from heaven to earth, you who girded yourself with a towel in order that you may wash your disciples' feet. You humbled yourself and took on the cross to die a sinner's death. God, you are the servant king, he who is truly humble. And God, we pray 
that we may follow in your example of humility, that we may resist the pride that is in our world today. We may resist the schemes and plans of the enemy. May we grow to be more humble, more reliant on you, almighty God, your grace, your mercy and kindness. But may we also grow to be reliant, more reliant on each other, on the unique graces and gifts they've given to people in our community. May we grow to be a humble community. We thank you for your word. We pray your grace to be upon us. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's go back into worship together.